The New Testament reading comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, 12 through 20. A reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Now I should remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaimed to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I, in turn, had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised, and if Christ has not been raised... Then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ... We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading this morning is from Luke. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wandering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's, uh, Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we uh, think about these texts of scripture and we think about how they teach us and lead us in understanding this affirmation in the creed that on the third day Jesus rose again, would you help us to understand how we might um, wrestle with our own doubts and our own uncertainties and how we might be uh, persons and really a community of hope that embodies the hope of the risen Christ and all that we do and all that we say and all that we think. So lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. So we're, uh, we're continuing our study that we're doing uh, between Easter and Pentecost on the teaching of the Apostles' Creed. And uh, this week, we're at that phrase, on the third day he rose again. And so just very quickly, remember that, um, that we've said, as we've sort of you know, taken up this journey through the Apostles' Creed, the lines of the Apostles' Creed, we've used the metaphor of a map to help us to think about it. In other words, uh, when you go on a hike or when you go on a trip, you utilize a map to, to sort of lead you in that journey, but you don't keep your head buried in the map, right? The whole point of having a map is that you would look up 
and you would experience something of the beauty of the area that you're in. You would have an experience. And it's no different with God. We have these, we have these creeds. We have confessions and sort of ideas that we have where we think about God. We talk about God. But the point of that is that we would actually have an experience of God, right? So the creed is a map. It's not the landscape. And it's just a helpful metaphor, I think, to help us think about what are we doing when we're talking about something theological like this. Um, and uh, it, it, the point of the map is to help us to explore, to develop an awakened curiosity that, you know, three feet ahead, there is a vista. And the vista we're at today is on the third day he rose again from the dead. Now, this, you know, is admittedly the hardest part of the map, right? I mean, I think we just have to be very honest about that, that this is a challenging part of the map because it's not part of our everyday world. Um, we are used to, you know, we're mostly used to these stories in our world of, of death and loss and pain and suffering. And even when we have sort of moments of, of beauty and sort of glimpses of hope and, you know, uh, just sweet moments with a friend or with a spouse or with your children, you know, we, we know that these types of things give way to death. Um, and so here we are in, in this map. It's, it's not hard at all to believe that uh, Jesus was born, for example, example because you know, you're here. Guess what? You were born, right? It's part of your story. It was part of Jesus's story. You look at Jesus's story, we trek through it, right? That he suffered under Pontius Pilate, right? Okay, maybe your suffering wasn't of the quality of Jesus's, or maybe it wasn't of the dimensions of his suffering, but your life has suffering. There's, you know, small t and large t trauma inside of your life, right? Uh, and that's characteristic of every single one of us. Last week, Chris looked at that really mysterious piece of the puzzle, right, or of the map that he descended to the lowest parts. He descended to the dead, right? And, you know, again, as, you know, as mysterious as that may feel to us, we know that that is just part of the map of human experience. Uh, yesterday, I was scrolling through my uh, little reading of the New York Times, um, and you know, there's that fun little section, what are the stories that are trending, if you've ever looked at it. And there's a list of trending stories, and number 13 yesterday, it is number six today, by the way, or at least it was this morning, is this um, uplifting article entitled, Everyone You Know Will Someday Die. And it is, um, it's a collection, really, of articles that have appeared in the New York Times over different years. They're essays about death. They're essays about people that have been diagnosed with terminal illness and they're going to die. Uh, and they're essays in which they're exploring, well, now that I have this diagnosis, how do I live? There's an essay by <clears throat> Paul Kal Kalanithi, who wrote the book, uh, This is Air, and some of you may be familiar with his piece. Uh, there's an essay by Kate Bowler in there, and she's a faculty member at Duke Divinity who lives currently with stage four, ongoing stage four colon cancer. Um, there's, a, uh, there's, a, there's an article that Oliver Sacks wrote about his, uh, di his terminal diagnosis there, before he died. There's you know, just so on and so forth. And these are articles that sort of the New York Times has sort of called together and pulled together and says, you know, these are, these are encouraging reads about death. Read them. Think about death. We read things like that simply because we know that the sting of death is a real sting. We know the loss of death is a real loss. And some of us have experienced that 
more personally in our lives, and some of us, it still feels a little more at bay and, and distanced from our lives, but the thing is, we know it's ordinary, and we know it's coming. We know it's going to happen, and so you read, it's, it's number 13, but today it's a number 16, number 6 read, because we know that this is the ordinary trajectory of human life, and guess what? It's not hard to imagine that Jesus experienced that too if he was born into a world like ours, but if you come to this line of the map, right, and you read on the third day he rose again, then maybe what Jesus' life in birth and suffering and death and descent among the dead, maybe it means something more than at first glance, right? In other words, the whole of the map that we're reading, the whole of the Apostles' Creed really hinges on the reality that Jesus rose again from the dead, um, if we are to find something about the life of Jesus that's, you know, that more than just simply the goodness of his teaching, for example, or the beauty of the love that he showed when he would do miraculous things, when he would heal a leper, or when he would feed 5,000 people, when he would sort of show love to the most marginal persons in his society, if you're to find more than just simple an inspirational human story of love triumphing over what's normal, it hinges on the reality that on the third day he rose again from the dead. So let's think about the two texts that we just read, um, one from the Gospel of Luke and one from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. These are two very different groups of people that are sort of, that are wrestling with the meaning or the reality of Jesus' resurrection, right? Uh, two very different groups of people, an early Jewish group of people, the disciples who followed Jesus on, on the one hand and were most intimate with him. They had the most intimate human contact with him on the one hand, that community. And on the other hand, there's this community of sort of um, out of the Greek world, out of the Gentile world. So miles away and even years away, some 20 years later even perhaps, uh, they're still wrestling with the meaning and possibility of the resurrection because resurrection didn't fit either the Jewish expectation, their thought, their, their desires uh, on the one hand, and it didn't fit the, the Greek expectation of thought uh, either. Um, and we might add, it just didn't fit the realities of what they live with in their everyday lives any more than it fits our experiences of everyday life. So Luke 24. The story of Jesus' resurrection, when you sort of stumble into this section of Luke 24, is beginning to unfold, right? There's the story of the women who came to the tomb, and they have an experience of Jesus raised from the dead, an experience of, uh, of an empty tomb. There's their story told to the men uh, who, who are wrestling with the reality of what they've said. There's the men that we would read about in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, right? These are disciples of Jesus, people that had some proximity to him. But because he died, they've just concluded very simply, as you and I might conclude, that he's not the Messiah. He's not the guy. He's not the one. And so they're leaving Jerusalem, and they're pretty dejected in that departure from Jerusalem. And there's these stories of what the women have encountered, right? Swirling in their head, but they're still leaving Jerusalem because they, they can't make sense of it all. But then there's that moment when they actually encounter and meet Jesus and he breaks bread with them around a fire and all of a sudden, the things that he'd been teaching them along the road, all of these things begin to swirl back and they, they, they rethink it all because of this moment of encounter with Jesus more personally. 
But here we are in Luke, a little bit later in this journey of discussing and thinking about the resurrection. And here the disciples were. They're locked up in a room. Uh, they're scared. They're nervous. They, they know these stories of what has happened about the empty tomb, about these people that said, hey, well, we saw him, we encountered him. And, but they're scared. And then sort of in a Harry Potter-like kind of way, Jesus is all of a sudden in the room with them through the locked door. And it's just totally weird. You're thinking, okay, maybe he's got a body, but this isn't like our body. And their conclusion is very simply what? He's a ghost. He's a ghost. Now just, you know, put yourself in their shoes, folks. You know, would your heart be racing? Would you be terrified? Would you be afraid? Would you be like, you know, of course you would feel all these kinds of things. These moments, these spaces of ambivalence. Like, here's what we do. When we encounter new pieces of information about anything, you know, take, take whatever field you study. Take whatever things you choose to observe in the world. What do you do? You fit it into the story that you already know. That's what we do. That's how we learn it's how we grow up as persons from childhood into adulthood, into mature adulthood. We're always sort of taking in the facts of the world and we're placing them inside of the story that we already know. Resurrection doesn't fit the story that we already know. And you see that here with all of these stories of the New Testament. It makes no sense. So there's terror, there's fear, there's anxiety. And I love this, you know, here in the midst of this freaky moment, this scary moment, Jesus says, touch me. Touch me. I'm not a ghost. And they touch him. And he says, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm hungry. Do you have anything to eat? And you're thinking, this, this is getting weirder by the moment. Because if you can walk through a door, why do you need to eat? But Jesus wants to eat something, and so they give him a fish. And he eats a fish. It's a really weird moment. It's unbelievable. But these experience of Jesus, who was crucified, who descended to the dead in some very real and discernible way, all of the people knew this piece of data. And it fit easily into what they knew of the world, easily into that world, easily into that story. But Jesus alive, bodily present back in the world, None of that makes sense. And yet what we know is it became the tipping point for those early followers of Jesus who started to let the story of resurrection, the reality of resurrection, these stories that people experienced of Jesus, of resurrection, reshape everything they understood, everything they understood about God, everything they, uh, they sort of had taken for granted about God, everything they tried to process about God, they let what they were experiencing through the stories of these witnesses to the resurrection change the way they viewed the world, change the way they viewed their own lives. Rowan Williams says that Christianity is a contact before it is a message. It is a contact before it is a message. What does he mean? I think something like this. That God has chosen to not remain an abstraction to our understanding of him. He's not an idea. But God in the most personal ways has entered our world as a person as you are a person. So that we might know him intimately the way we can know one another intimately. He's a contact. The point is contact. The point is connection. The point is that 
Human beings would be reconnected with God in a way that leads them to embrace their own humanity in God-likeness differently. It's a contact before. It's a message, and it's so easy to sort of let it just become a message, an abstraction, theological ideas that are out there, and not the roadmap that leads us to look up and have contact with the real God. Now quickly, um, Paul's chapter, this chapter from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you haven't read that in a while, I just would commend you to go back to, to 1 Corinthians 15, you know, when you're sort of reading little tiny chunks of it, as we were reading earlier, it feels like a mouthful, right? It's like this, this like, whoa, what's going on here? But go back and read the whole chapter. And it is a beautiful chapter of Paul linking our present life with our future life and calling us to let the resurrection of Jesus become a central way in which we begin to understand what it means to be human now as much as later. Now quickly in this chapter, right, this is a chapter that is that's speaking of, of, a, of a community of Jesus' followers similar to the disciples, but the difference is that these are Gentile followers, Right? And the difference is that we're, you know, we're miles and years apart now, right? These are people that are they're miles, and, and with those miles, and with the, with, the, with the community of the Gentiles, this is, a, this is a leap culturally. This is a leap in terms of religion. This is a leap in terms of plurality, in terms of all of the ways that human cultures are different from one another, right? This is Paul sort of working with a church that is not Jewish, and yet one of the things you very quickly discern in chapter 15 is that just like those very early Jewish followers of Jesus, these Gentile followers of Jesus, you know, their knee-jerk reaction to resurrection is to fall back into the story they already believed. It's not to let resurrection become the starting point for how they understand life, how they understand what it means to be a Gentile even, how it means, how it, what it means to be in the Corinthian community at all. But instead, they fall back into their taken-for-granted views of life, right? In which this, bot, this idea of a bodily resurrection in the Greek world was just weird. It was like, why would you want that? Because the whole point of, of sort of, uh, the whole problem of life, as they sort of understood it, was had to do with your body. And, and what a great release it would be to not have a body. And here Paul is talking about this future bodily resurrection as if it's some kind of hope. This is weird hope. It makes no sense to them. And so it begins to be, you know, they just, so they fall back into the older way of thinking about things, and Jesus just becomes, a, resurrection becomes a spiritual reality. It's not a real physical reality. It's not a future reality for the people in the, the community of God, at least in their mind. But what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 is he comes back to this vista of resurrection on the third day as the key to the whole map. And he says, if you don't sort of embrace this vista, if you don't understand this vista, the, the thing you've got to understand about, you know, you may be trying to follow the teachings of Jesus. You may be trying to show the love of Jesus in the context of this world. But look, it all hinges on the reality of resurrection. There's a vanity to your faith. In other words, um, at the end of the day, nothing has changed for anyone. The trajectory of humanity is what the trajectory of humanity was before. As Paul puts it here, he says, we're still in our sins. In other words, the ruin, the brokenness, the sadness, the loss, the death that is characteristic of this world and our lives, the suffering is 
the trajectory. But if it's resurrection, the trajectory is something else. Paul wants them to understand how resurrection changes everything. Um, so Luke and Paul keep coming back to these lived stories of people, of individuals that encountered Jesus in a way that left them absolutely persuaded that he was not a ghost and that resurrection was not merely a nice spiritual reality about renewal, a, a nice sort of inspirational teaching, right? Uh, spring, the flowers bloom. It's not that. But Jesus was physically present in the presence of real people. And so how does that lead you to become a person, to become a community that is willing to take the risk of reimagining everything you already think about life? Reimagining the way you live inside of some personal conflict right now in this particular moment. Reimagining the way you live with some diagnosis that you're unhappy with. Reimagining the way that you lived with a difficult relationship with someone and just so on and so forth. Reimagining the way you live with conflict that you hear about in our world. Leslie Newbigin says that resurrection is the kind of thing, it's the kind of event that if it's real, if it really happened in truth, that it is not an event that you can simply add to what you already believe. The story that's already shaped your life. But if it's real, it's the kind of thing that you begin with, that you reimagine and reinterpret your life story through. One more observation as we finish up. I mentioned that in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul, I think, is really holding together the tension of this present life and our future life in Jesus. In other words, the change in trajectory changes the way we live now. It's interesting, one of the articles that I was reading in that New York, New York collection, right, New York Times collection of articles, <clears throat> mentions this, that, you know, you, you, that when you're diagnosed with, with a terminal disease, it feels like there's no dialogue about the future anymore. You just lose hope. And the moment you lose hope, you show up at a party, and what happens at the party? You don't know what to say to people. And guess what? People don't know what to say to you. Sometimes they say trivial things and utterly ridiculous things because they're so clueless about the pain that you're experiencing in your life. If we reframe our lives inside of the trajectory of the story of Jesus, it enables us to be a little bit more honest about those struggles. It enables us to be present in the moment in a very different way, maybe even a life-giving way, even in the midst of our experience of death. Paul links resurrection hope to our present as much as to our future. Now, I grew up in the church, and here's the problem with growing up in the church. I, I, on the one hand, I think, that's not a bad thing. Thanks, Mom. You know, but, but here's the problem of growing up in the church. You and I hear words like resurrection from the dead, and we forget that's weird, right? You just, you say it every Easter, you know. We say it in the Apostles' Creed. We sing about it in the songs we were singing this morning. We pray about it periodically, you know. But we just forget that's weird. And that's a real problem when we try to have a real conversation with a neighbor. Because they think, you're weird. You don't get that that's weird, do you? That's really strange. How do you live in that bubble, right? Have you ever had that experience? And I think one of the things that you and I need to recapture as much as anything, if we're going to have a real conversation with a real world about a resurrected Jesus, is we need to realize it's weird. It doesn't fit the world they live in. It doesn't fit the world that you live in. It fits the world that God has recreated in the person of Jesus.
And we're called to lean into these old stories. We're called to hear their testimony. They're bearing witness to what they experienced. And we're called to say, look, they were real people too, the way I'm a real person. And they struggled to believe, but somehow they encountered something about a Jesus, this person, this man, that they couldn't simply write off any longer. That they had to let rethink, reshape the way they were understanding the world. Here's another problem. Sometimes inside of the church, we just sort of stop thinking about how that hope changes the present. And we really live inside of this future sort of moment. So you encounter someone that's struggling with a hard thing in their lives, or maybe it's the terminal diagnosis, and we say things like, well, at least there's heaven. And we just sort of, it's pie in the sky. And we become so otherworldly that we have no idea how to be present in the world. And sometimes when the church has looked at social problems like racism or chronic poverty or drug addiction or whatever, we have sort of said, well, why, you know, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? Why do that? Why not just sort of get everybody into heaven? Because that becomes our whole agenda is can you believe these very simple truths about Jesus and then you're safe forever? But we have no idea how to speak to the real pain, the real suffering that's going on in the world now. When I read 1 Corinthians 15, I see Paul linking both together. I see Paul talking about now and later, the present and the future. Resurrection isn't merely about life in heaven. It's about so much more. It's about life now on earth. There's a sense in which, you know, resurrection is very worldly. Because God's intention is that his world and our world would so merge in the person of Jesus, this moment of resurrection, as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5, it is new creation. That his world and our world would be so merged that we would find joy that that is the world that goes on forever. And we would begin to live life now in a way that actually reflects and mirrors the future. One of the curious things that I find so very compelling about the story of Jesus is the connection between life now and life later. Think about it for just a moment. Just think about your own experience of being human. You live life and you, you love, right? Do you love? Have you ever experienced love? Have you ever tasted love? Have you ever felt that sort of attachment to someone? Maybe it's a mom, maybe it's a dad, a sibling, a friend, a neighbor, right? Maybe it's a husband, a wife, a, a spouse, a dear one, a grandmother, a grandfather. You've experienced this sort of... this. This deep sort of sense of, I love them. And what you want in that love is that that attachment, right, would go on. It wouldn't be interrupted by anything. That's what you want as a human being. We experience this tension between love and hate. We experience this tension between mercy and its lack. We experience a tension between a desire and a deep longing that our world would be a place of justice. And yet the reality that it's not. We experience all of these tensions between an aspiration toward beauty, right, and goodness and truth. And all of the things that we taste in life that say there's no goodness, there's no truth, there's no beauty. Beauty gives way to ugliness. 
life gives way to death. That's the trajectory of the human experience, if that's all you have. We long for the good, the true, the beautiful, the lovely, the just to actually be the final word, not death, not all of the losses and the absence of those things. And I think when the Apostle Paul is sort of wrestling with this notion of resurrection and he sees that the Corinthian church is sort of falling back into just a simple Greek way of thinking about things and spiritualizing things like resurrection, I think what Paul is thinking is you're missing out on the truth of what God has done. You're missing out that the resurrection is really God's yes to your deepest longings. The resurrection is God's yes. Yes, it feels impossible when we think about it in the abstract or what would it be like if we were in their shoes. But we begin to discern in the resurrection of Jesus that what God wants is what you want. He wants love and goodness and justice and truth and beauty to be the very threads of life that go on forever. And Paul believed that Jesus' physical resurrection, it wasn't a clever miracle or a nice magic trick, right? This is not Harry Potter world. It was, uh, it, was, it was the beginning of new creation. Right then and there, God's saying goodness and truth and justice and mercy and love are the things that endure and will endure. One of the implications for us is just very simply this, that when we confess that vista, when we sort of get to that vista, on the third day he rose again from the dead, and we lift up our eyes and we behold, what would it be like to be persons and to be a community that just took those words to heart, seriously in some way, amidst our doubts, amidst all the things that are hard about it. You know, we're not like trying to pretend it's not hard, but if we just become people that take it seriously, what would happen to us? And I think it's something like this, that our lives would begin to reflect the life of those words. We'd find courage to stay in the game of being a human being. We'd find courage to sort of stick with hard things in life, to be a friend, a husband, a wife, a parent, a doctor, a lawyer, a business person, a teacher, an administrator, a garbage collector, to discern who God wants us to be in this world and actually go be it with hope, with confidence that in God's hands, amidst all of those places where we still experience death and loss, and we feel confused that God is telling a very different story and our lives are part of that story. Jesus went among the dead, Chris said last week. He descended to the lowest parts of death. And there's something really beautiful in that story if Jesus rose from the dead. It means that the hardest things of your life, the hardest things in our world, to take in, to appreciate the hardest places, the stories of deepest sorrows, that God is a God who has not avoided that. But he looks on you, he looks on our world, he looks on the hard places, and when he raises Jesus from the dead, he says, there's another word, and that's what will endure forever. Goodness and justice and mercy and truth, because on the third day he rose from the dead. May God give us grace to look up from that vista and behold his beauty and his goodness. Let's pray together. 
Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these words and what they might mean for our lives, what you, by your spirit, might be teaching us today, would you help us to just be honest about the doubts, honest about our confusion and our uncertainty, but help us in the midst of doubt and uncertainty to see that you're a God who is empathetic with our doubt, a God who does these things nonetheless that we might be a people of hope and that we might belong to your future of hope. So lead us to live in our world differently, proclaiming the story of Jesus who died and who rose again. In his name we pray. Amen.